Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, uh, with you as always from Berlin. And of course, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist, Columbia University professor. He's in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, uh, you know, someone pointed out to me the other day that we have been doing this podcast for six months now, which is somehow feels like a surprise and a kind of marker. And anyone who's been listening to us during that time knows we generally do two segments. Uh, We try to diversify what we're talking about. But sometimes we make exceptions. Last week we made an exception, and this week we will be doing the same because the same dominating crisis is still with us. Of course, I'm talking here about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, So in the second half of this podcast, we're specifically going to be talking about the damage to the Russian economy. But first, we wanted to take a wider lens and talk about whether this all has the makings of a global economic crisis. So the data point for both segments, really, is one and the same. It's 0.89. That's 0.89 cents. That is the value of a single ruble, the Russian currency, right now as we're recording this. That's less than a penny. The Russian economy, it is plunging, taking a direct hit from the sanctions. The ruble, absolutely in freefall. It's definitely an unprecedented situation on the Russian market, uh, basically at all levels. New restrictions announced over the weekend on Russia's central bank target the roughly $600 billion rainy day fund that Russia built to sanction-proof their economy. And the result here is one great power, Russia, is subjugating another country, Ukraine, to terrible violence, while its own economy has been sent into a kind of freefall by other great powers here in the U.S. and, and Europe. So, about these sanctions, a lot has happened very quickly since we last talked, Adam. Late last week, I was asking whether, you know, sanctions on Russia's central bank were a possibility. I, you know, I was really just <laughs> hoping to confirm the general boundaries on the scale of this conflict, but we blew by that marker on Sunday. The central bank sanctions came from the U.S. on Sunday, blocking Russia's access to much of its foreign reserves, and then there were swift sanctions thrown in for good measure. It just all seemed to be a real significant shift from just a few days previous. And for me, this raised a general question. You know, I admit it's a broad one. But Adam, should we say now that the West is at war, by which I mean an economic war? I don't even know if that term, if you think that's coherent, economic war. And if so, if there is such a thing, is it on a continuum with military war? I mean, what do you say, Adam? I I think this is a very profound question and a really serious one, and it's been haunting me, I'll admit, all week. I'm increasingly concerned that talking about what we're doing in terms of sanctions is euphemistic, because I think sanctions implies, and I think our original vision was, that as it were, Russia overwhelms Ukraine, seizes Ukraine, creates a 
fait accompli, which we then sanction, punish by a set of measures directed at the Russian economy. And I think that is a euphemistic way of describing what's actually happened. That isn't what has happened, right? The, the war as a result of the extraordinary resistance of the Ukrainians and the apparent incompetence or bad design of the Russian offensive is now very much a live military contest, which has become existential for not only the Ukrainians, but the Russians as well. And into that explosive situation, which was creating a huge bow wave of global opinion and mobilization around the Ukraine over the weekend, Europe and the United States acting in concert launched this this bomb, really, of, a, of an economic measure. And the crucial thing here, and it's all about sanctions by central banks on another central bank. And, and that does create a condition, it seems to me, which, you know, if you had to choose anyway, the phrase which I think brings home the gravity of the situation that we're in more clearly than sanctions is economic war, financial war. Um, because we are aiming to inflict massive damage on the Russian financial system and by way of that on the Russian economy um, in the middle of a shooting conflict which is unresolved and, you know, the consequences of which are yet unclear. Um, and we are clearly taking sides. So it's to me the difference between, as it were, sanctioning an assailant in the courts after an assault has taken place and us, as it were, throwing ourselves into the fight on the side of the party that's been aggressed against. And I do think that, you know, we need some it's combat rather than the meeting out of punishment. So just to burrow down here a little bit, if we are calling this a kind of economic war, I mean, how does that compare to the methods of military war? I mean, is it all on, on one spectrum here? Or I don't know, it seems to me that at the very least, economic war takes this more legalistic form. We're talking about sanctions written on paper, not bombs bursting over buildings. Or can this method of war be just as vicious and violent? Well, I mean, I don't think I'm establishing equivalence here. You know, we should at all costs avoid that, right? Because clearly the gravity of what's happened in the Ukraine doesn't, you know, is not something that one should sort of obfuscate or shy away from. I, 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 the point I'm making is really that to talk in terms of sanctions within the realm of economic measures, this doesn't seem to be any longer really strictly speaking the case of sanctions. What I'm particularly worried about here is the alignment of thinking between the measures that we're taking towards Russia and the measures that the US has been taking for many years now towards Iran. Because Iran, it does seem to me, is something like a sanctions case. But of course, the fundamental terrifying misunderstanding there is that is Iran is really, in a sense, helpless in the face of these measures that are applied to it. Whereas Russia is anything but, as Putin demonstrated so forcefully on Sunday, um, you know, he's in command... He's not an aspirant nuclear state that's desperately struggling to develop a nuclear program in the face of Western opposition. He, he commands the second largest nuclear arsenal in the world. And that used to be the dominating fact of global politics until the 1990s. And somehow in the last couple of decades, that has slipped our mind to the point at which it seems sensible to talk about applying Iranian methods to Russia. Um, so that's, that's really what I think is terrifying. Yes, in the details, of course, it's not really a shooting war. Um, it's legalistic, it's forensic, um, it, it involves, you know, sort of detective work and tracking down oligarchs' yachts and working your way through bank accounts to try and establish where money is and where it isn't. The consequences can be serious. In the case of Russia, they're not going to be lethal because it's a rich country. But of course, in cases where countries are under more severe economic pressure, it, it can be lethal. And say the blockade of 
Germany in World War One is, is estimated to have cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, if not more than that, through starvation and malnutrition. So pushed to the limit. Um, and this sanctions regime doesn't even come close to that, right? It specifically exempts the trade in food and medical supplies, and most American sanction regimes do. It's I think that's General License 6 is the exemption. But in the limit, this is coercion, and it has material impacts, um, but which are very real, and you could therefore qualify it as a kind of violence. But it would be metaphorical, and we have to go, you know, we have to insist on that again. But it's certainly hostile, warlike, combative. So I see how this could really affect the Russian economy. And, and yeah, we are going to be discussing that in more detail later on in the podcast. But I'd like to try to understand how this could blow back to the rest of the world and to the United States or, or Europe more specifically. I mean, what form could blowback again take in this kind of economic conflict i mean we only we know all sorts of exemptions are being made uh, to allow for the continued trade in energy but are there other parts of the west economy that are dependent on trade with the russian economy well i think we have to distinguish between as it were the world the united states and europe um at the global level, you know, it's, one shouldn't exaggerate the significance of Russia as an economy. It is a major supplier of oil and gas, and nothing has been done so far to interrupt that. The, the interruptions which are occurring in the oil market are to do with private actors deciding they don't want a piece of the Russian oil action anymore. But the Russian economy is, you know, is, is a, is, makes up just 1.7% of global GDP. Of that, you know, 20% is uh, imports, 28% is exports. So if you were to half Russia's imports, it would be you know a fraction of a fraction of 1% of global GDP that was affected. Where the impact is felt more severely is in amongst Russia's smaller and more dependent neighbours. And we've spoken about this before, but Central Asia, for instance, is a place to watch because those economies and states are not just, as it were, within Russia's grip in terms of politics and security policy, though many of them are struggling from independence, but their workforces uh, travel to um, Russia for work. There are uh, 4.5 million workers from Uzbekistan in Russia, 2.4 million from Tajikistan, 920,000 from Kyrgyzstan. And, and all of those have been hit by these central bank actions because one of the responses of the Russian central bank was to stop foreigners from selling rubles and buying foreign exchange. And those workers are there not for the love of Russia, but because they need to make remittances to their families at home. It's the immediate environment that takes the hit. This is true in Europe as well. For Americans to be worrying about this at all, I think is is frankly a little bit frivolous, like the impact of the Russian economy on the American economy directly. I mean, the Biden administration has to be seen to be doing something about global oil prices because the gas price, the petrol price at the pump is such an important part of American politics. But by compared, comparison with the people who actually have problems, it's, it's trivial. Well, that's reassuring that the United States is somewhat insulated here. But what about the effect on the U.S. dollar? I do recall that in previous crises, the U.S. dollar sort of acts as a, a safe haven for investors around the world. Are we already seeing that kind of thing in this crisis? And how do, would that affect the United States more generally? I mean, I know that the United States is, is dealing with inflation right now. How might that contribute? Indeed, yeah. That is one of the things that generally happens in a crisis like this is that folks run into the dollar, even frankly, when the crisis originates in the United States, like the 2007-8 financial crisis. One of the really perverse things that happens is that people run into the dollar. 
Uh, this one, of course, doesn't. And they did run strongly into the dollar, especially in that terrifying Sunday to Monday as the Asian markets opened with, you know, the morning and the day having begun with a nuclear threat and then financial markets had to open. And that wasn't something that we'd done in a while. And indeed, the dollar did surge. This has a complicated set of impacts on the US. But first and foremost, one ought to stress that this has a hugely contractive effect on the global economy, because essentially, a huge part of global trade and finance is done in dollars. And if the dollar is rising relative to everything else, which it was in that early phase of the crisis, it exerts a squeeze on everyone. Everyone who owes dollars, who happens to need to settle dollar bills that week, whether it's for oil or gas or anything else, all of those suddenly become more expensive as the dollar rises. So it's a very bad sign for the global economy generally if the dollar is rising sharply, not just because it reflects anxiety, but because it will produce financial pressure. And that's something we've seen in the past, and we know how the Fed can respond to this in extremists. It can fill the world with dollars, which is what it most recently did in the spring of 2020. We're not there yet, and it's difficult to see how the crisis in Russia, Ukraine could really produce that level of panic. If it does, though, there is an answer. The tension there, though, is that if the Fed, as it were, floods the words with dollars because we're running short of dollar liquidity, it counteracts its efforts to stabilize inflation at home. And that will then make the Fed's dilemma more and more serious. I think despite this shock to confidence, most people expect the Fed this month in March to raise interest rates, which is a big reversal, obviously, of its stance since the COVID spring of 2020, though it may not raise them quite as much as we previously anticipated. To end on, again, a sort of from a broader question here, kind of return to where I started. I mean, it does seem like these sanctions were imposed in defense of the political world order as we know it. But could it be the liberal economic order is itself damaged as a result of all this? I mean, one of the big reasons it seems to me that the international economic system works are the legal norms that everyone trusts, <laughs> you know, including that central banks can place their deposits with each other. And that's precisely what the sanctions have now put a stop to. So will uh, the underlying trust necessarily survive the crisis, Adam? Well, I think as far as Russia is concerned, evidently not. I think what this exposes is there's a kind of hierarchy, right? That the rules of property, that that relationship of trust between central banks, G20 central banks at that, like core country central banks, is conditional on the willingness of governments to respect what we, let's say it frankly, we, the West, regards as basic norms of international legality. After all, I mean, we weren't putting up a vigorous defense of Ukraine 10 days ago. Um, it was quite clear that we were basically going to allow Russia to muscle Ukraine. We're not going to commit to military defense of the country to a serious extent, though extraordinary red lines have been crossed in that respect in the last week with Sweden and Germany both making arms deliveries. But all of all of the private property regime, all of the the intergovernmental, as it were, civility and respect of law is conditional on that more basic respect for you know international boundaries and international law, which Russia is absolutely clearly violated. And and does that shift the parameters? Absolutely, it does. And you would expect, you know, if you're if you're managing the Saudi Arabian foreign exchange reserve or the Chinese foreign exchange reserve. Those are the two countries in the list of large reserve holders that might conceivably find themselves in the sort of 
situation Russia is, where there is on their side a conflict between what they understand, or at least Putin understands to be national security objectives and their economic interest, then you would think that Saudi and China would be taking a long, hard look at where they put their money and who's holding it. Though for the Saudis, that might be a soluble problem because they've got like $450 billion worth of reserves, something like that, somewhat less than the Russians. But for China, I mean, it's, you know, three and a half trillion dollars worth of assets. If you're not going to put them into something which is either euro or dollars, where on earth do you go? There isn't an asset market really large enough to absorb that kind of money and to place it outside the reach of sanctions. I mean, the only other place you could put it would be China. And of course, that doesn't help China, right? So there's no outside as far as they're concerned, I think. So that creates a very different set of tensions. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a dramatic moment. I don't think it, it will in general. And Brazil, for instance, isn't going to reconsider its reserve position. I would, I would hope not. But those two in particular strike me as cases where there are some very profound questions which have now been posed. Yeah, the cat is out of the bag, I guess. Uh, we'll see what the effects are down the line. But okay, we're going to take a break here and be right back to talk more about, uh, about Russia. Okay, so we're back talking about Russia. And I guess I just again start with a pretty basic question, which is just how bad uh, could things get here for the Russian economy, Adam? I mean, let's entertain, I guess, some worst case scenarios. I was reading about, for example, how the boycotts by airline companies that are pulling out of Russia could make travel within Russia basically impossible soon. And, and I don't know, could that lead to an even further breakdown of the Russian state uh, in some ways. I mean, what are the worst case economic and political scenarios here? I mean, anything like that, the kind of disintegration of the Russian state would be 1990s style uh, drama. Uh, and that is the crisis, of course, which shaped the beginning of Putin's career in politics and defines his leadership ever since, right? That, that Russia will never go back to 1998. And I do indeed think it's a very unlikely scenario. I don't think it's helpful to be thinking in those terms. That's not the world they're in, right? I mean, let's take Iran as our benchmark instead to kind of get a view of how this might work out. The first thing, which the phase that we're in currently right now is the acute shock phase in which you're going to see financial panic, market closures, there's, there's repressed inflation as a result of the devaluation, which is quite serious. And that could take months to work its way through until they figured out you know, exactly where the damage is, whose balance sheet has taken a hit. Um, then there's the big recession that follows, hit to confidence, to investment spending, to exports, to trade and so on. Folks right now think that that by the end of this year could amount to a recession of about 10 to 14 percent, something like that would be reasonable. That would be half of Russia's exports as a share of GDP, which are 28 percent. So if they're cut in half, so that would give you a damage of 10 to 14 percent. Then you get, however, and this is crucial, and, and this is what Iran's experience shows us, adaptation, recovery, adjustment. So in the end, after that, Iran ended up like 7 to 8 percent before below where it was before the sanctions hit. And, and then, of course, the question is, what is the longer term impact in terms of the slowing down of, of growth? Um, and that's where the real shock and horror for many Russians comes in, because they, they look to the future and, you know, they see a broken future at this point. And I think that's 
that's another element of this trajectory, which is much less predictable, of course, and depends to a considerable extent on what policies the Russian government itself then adopts. So when we look at all these effects, I mean, who's going to suffer the most? I'm guessing it's ordinary Russian people, right? And, and I mean, in a way, that's the logic of the sanctions, right? To kind of instrumentalize the discontent of, of ordinary Russians? It is. And, and, and that's obviously then very ambiguous in its both morality, you might say, and in its politics. Um, and it's a kind of gradation, right? At the very top of society, the oligarchs are going to lose most. Those at the very bottom are going to suffer if we get generalized inflation, but they don't have assets to speak of. And their standard of living probably doesn't include a lot of expensive imported goods, which whose price will go up or will be hard to get hold of. You know, they're not in the business of buying Apple's phones or Apple tablets, which they won't be able to buy anymore or treating themselves to McDonald's regularly. And so it's probably really the Russian middle class. And I think this is something that we've seen in Iran and Turkey as well who have a bit to lose and can really ill afford to lose it, unlike the oligarchs, that will feel this pinch most. There's a kind of risk, if you like, a kind of proletarianization of the of the Russian middle class um, that comes into view with these kind of sanctions. And, and I guess the theory may be that it's also they that matter most in terms of mass politics. This is the educated, aspiring, upwardly mobile element of society that may feel that its hopes are and its hopes and dreams are being dashed at this moment. So you mentioned the economic elites, the oligarchs in Russia would stand to lose the most by, I guess, total volume here. But do they also have ways of insulating themselves from these kinds of sanctions, from this kind of general crisis? I mean, are there certain ways that certain parts of Russia can even profit from this kind of isolation? Yes, there are. I mean, I mean, at the, at the ultra oligarch level, of course, they, they simply employ the very best tax avoidance specialists. And as it were, you know, not crypto finance, but various types of dark finance that mean they can bury assets very deep um, in the Caribbean or in Cyprus or Malta or whatever. Um, and they will, to that extent, be able to rescue huge nest eggs through this entire crisis. And it's a price, in a sense, from their point of view, worth paying because, number one, you know, Putin will reward them in due course. They know this, right? So because they can redistribute resources in a more banal way, sanctions also create markets and opportunities, right? And the, the most evident example of this is, in fact, self-imposed sanctions. So, you know, Russia, in response to Europe's um, sanctions after the seizure of Crimea, imposed a ban on a boycott on the import of West European food. And so, you know, one of the results of this is a huge surge in the Russian poultry industry, a huge surge in the Russian dairy industry. And believe it or not, Russia now has a its own brand of Parmesan cheese, right? There is a Russian cheese industry as a result of these sanctions measures. Huh. Um, so, you know, P as in Parmesan or P as in Putin, literally stamped on the wheels, apparently, <laughs> a big P. Um, so... You know, there are these sort of beneficiaries overall, though. I mean, we're making light of what from the from Russia's point of view is a disaster and, and what will do very serious damage to the economy overall and stunt the prospects, career and life prospects of millions and millions of Russians. So, I mean, we are talking about a generalized economic crisis. Let's say the Russian government wanted to create some economic stimulus. Do they have the room for that kind of thing? I mean, how are Russian government bonds now looking? Can they afford to kind of do more spending to compensate for the for the crisis? 
This is an absolutely great question because, I mean, the first line of answer is to say, no, obviously, like, Russian bonds are doing terribly. I mean, absolutely terribly. They've been downgraded to junk overnight. Russian sovereign debt used to be traded at huge premiums because they've been running surpluses. They've run down their debt. They have a debt to GDP, according to the IMF, of 20% of GDP. I mean, that's like a fraction of America's debt to GDP. So they were highly rated assets and they have been trashed in a matter of days. And if you wanted to get insurance against lending to the Russian government right now, you'd have to add sort of 10% on top of of um, whatever interest rate that you were you were asking. So it's it's really dramatic. But I think that it'll be a fallacy to imagine, uh, but it's a, it's a really important point to make that Russia's fiscal policy options in no way depend on this, right? I mean, what has happened after all is that Russia has now become enclosed. It has effectively ceased the flow of foreign currency and Russian currency across its boundaries. And that gives it monetary sovereignty in the way that it is, you know, not chosen to exercise really since the Soviet period. And in a space like that, uh, there are even less risks than there are normally for a country like Russia to pursuing an independent national sovereign fiscal policy. There's nothing to stop them doing, you know, MMT style, monetarily financed fiscal policy at this moment, other than worrying desperately about confidence. And what this exposes is that if Russia's economic performance has been lackluster in recent years, if the counterpart to that is this huge accumulation of unspent export revenues in the form of the foreign exchange reserve, which has ended up being sanctioned, what this reflects in part is that the Russian authorities have kept their foot off the gas domestically. They've run an austere fiscal policy. They run surpluses in most years. You know, most oil com- countries, oil exporters, set the budget so that it balances if oil earns, I don't know, $75 a barrel. If you're abstemious like the Russians, you set your budget to balance if oil is as low as $45 a barrel, which they've been doing. So they've been squeezing their economy with austere fiscal policy, in part, I think, because they're just conservatives and they can't help themselves. And they've been traumatized by the hyperinflation of the 1990s. It's kind of like a, it's like a mini Germany with oil and gas, if you like instead of, you know, being the importer of oil and gas, which Germany actually is. And on the other hand, of course, they're trying to build this foreign exchange reserves to give them national security, but it comes at the price of low growth. So one way in which they could indeed compensate and to an extent, quote unquote, take advantage of the current uh, sanctions regime is to use the shield of monetary regulations to offset the collapse in private confidence that will undoubtedly follow by a substantial fiscal stimulus. And it'll be very interesting to see whether they do this. They did it to a very modest degree after the Crimean sanctions were imposed. It will be interesting to see whether they go large this time. So far, as far as, far as I'm able to see, no news about this. But I think in Moscow right now, they have other things on their mind. So, Adam, could these sanctions directly affect Putin's prosecution of this war? Could they make it too costly for him to continue this invasion and end the war early that way somehow? I think this is the central question. I'm glad you asked it. And I think it has different elements to it. Um, if we're asking whether the sanctions could stop the military offensive and halt the campaign due to shortages of some kind or not, um, I think that's that's very unlikely. They have enough, surely enough, uh, equipment stockpile to carry this through. I think the escalation of the violence on the battlefield, which is such a horrific uh, reality in the current moment, is independent of this problem. 
insofar as the sanctions have a logic beyond the punitive and beyond the need to simply show our consistency from the West, which is important, that, that's not a trivial concern. I think the idea is that they raise the pressure on the home front of the regime to such a point that Putin has to change his mind. And I have to say, I find that vision too quite unrealistic. And so I'm, I'm, I'm a bit worried that more than a bit worried, uh, concerned that in the background here, there's actually some sort of vision of regime change that that is animating this, right? There's some, because anything else implies that A, you've got to believe that the Russian population en masse will shift against Putin on the basis of economic deprivation, for which I just don't think there's that much, there's no reason in particular to believe that's the case. All he needs is a nationalist rally on the part of a minority to offset that in any case. We've seen that in Iran uh, as, as a logic. You'd also then have to believe that faced with that kind of opposition, Putin would choose to back down. And, and if we know anything about his character, and of course, character study is, a, is, is an imprecise business, but if we do know anything about it, it seems to point in the opposite direction that this is a man when backed into the corner who raises the states and becomes more aggressive. And so if that's the case, then it would seem that the, the model is, is premised on a third assumption, which is that when he goes when he goes, you know, when he really begins to escalate in an extremely dangerous fashion, that some members of the elite will intervene to stop him, which is essentially a story about regime change. And that just seems to me a mountain of, as it were, imponderables and high-risk scenarios and assumptions that certainly as far as the open source stuff that one can read in the public realm, I just don't see what you would found that on, that model. So in the short run, I think it's about inflicting pain and showing consistency. And there's also a solidaristic element, which I think came into the equation over the weekend when, as it were, there was this huge upsurge of global support for the Ukrainian cause. We needed to be seen to be doing something. I think European politicians felt this pressure very acutely. And there was that, after all, that extraordinary meeting with Zelensky where he's saying, you know, I'm speaking to you as this may be the last time we ever speak together. You know, that, that of course, affects them deeply. And I, I, don't, I wouldn't discount that as an element in the equation. Well, even if it's mostly motivated by solidarity, uh, that seems like a really worthwhile motivation. But we will leave it there for now. And I imagine we'll be coming back to this subject in the weeks ahead. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcast at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rosprow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. 
Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.